0: Hello and welcome to the Farm One podcast, coming to you from our vertical farm here in Manhattan. My name's Rob Lang. I'm the CEO and founder of Farm One. And today I'm joined by Benjamin Law, and he's the author of The Secret Life of Groceries, which is a book in which he pulls the curtain back and shows us the complex and sometimes troubling world behind how our food gets to the grocery store. And so welcome, Ben. Really excited to have you here.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me in this little like urban paradise. This yeah. is like the top secret life of groceries. I feel like <laughs> like two levels below the Manhattan streetscape. Exactly. There lurks a farm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah very good. And, uh, and so I'm excited to have you here. And I'm sort of curious, like initially, what was the thing that inspired you to write this book in the first place?
1: Uh, yeah. So there is actually a very clear like origin moment. I had been writing this book on Bikram yoga, uh, which very interesting, part of I, I'm an immersive journalist to some extent, so I was doing a lot of yoga during the writing of that book, uh, and was marooned at a hotel in San Diego uh, for a teacher training to get close to Bikram Chowdhury, who's this kind of megalomaniacal guru at the heart of that book. Uh, and I was really interested in why yoga was exploding and like, why people were doing, like, why, why yoga became this like mass trend, uh, where there was like 19 you know, Bikram Studios in New York. And then one day they let us out of this like hotel where we were kind of stuck doing yoga for nine weeks, twice a day. And we went to a Trader Joe's and all the yogis like descended from this this like van that the teacher training had hired to like cart us to and from. And they just went bananas. It was like kids at an amusement park going into a grocery store. And and there just was this light bulb moment where I was like, oh, these are like similar phenomenon. Uh, like the idea that grown adults are getting this excited about a grocery store, just dovetailed with some other observations about like how food had changed in the American landscape over the last 30 to 40 years from a place where when I was growing up, the grocery store was like definitionally a chore. It was <laughs> boring bland and you didn't want to do it. And now people were identifying with it uh, as like this value signifier.
0: It's really interesting. And and I think like I'm someone as a consumer where where I go into the grocery store and I see it as this kind of convenient place where all this stuff is that I want. But what am I kind of missing? What's behind that? (laughs) Well, you're probably, you're
1: not missing one thing which is it's designed to produce that abundance and like the big message from its inception uh, that the supermarket has kind of been pounding is like abundance, abundance, abundance and choice, choice, choice. And we're going to overwhelm you with these two things at, and use them strategically to lower prices uh, in a volume game. And that's going to cause this feedback cycle where you purchase more and more and more. Um, so I think that message is hitting home. There are a lot of hidden facets to how those two values of abundance and choice are delivered and and, and convenience is delivered that uh, that get a little less savory. And that, and that's where the book, you know, kind of looks at all the hidden voices that are delivering that convenience to us and the ways that uh, there's a cost to our kind of consumer pressures uh, that gets born on them.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so give us maybe a little bit of history. How did we get to here? Cause it hasn't always been like this, right?
1: Sure. So back, if you go travel back in time, you get to something called the general store, which was, you know, you can picture the guy behind the counter who is behind a counter. You weren't allowed to touch the goods at the general store. It was about the size of a convenience store, maybe a little smaller. Um, it sold boots, it sold medicines, it had, you know, opiums. It had food, but they were like dried fruit in barrels that you would, the clerk would have to chisel out. Uh, it had some dry goods, like seasonal produce, um, you know, meat and other fresh goods were sold elsewhere. And that general store, uh, kind of ambled along until there was one, a revolution in packaging. Uh, and, I, you know, I always say, like, forget the wheel. The big development of 20th century retail, at least, is the cardboard box, which really transformed shipping uh, and made it, you know, directly connected the supplier to the grocery store and made regular shipments possible. And uh, And alongside that revolution in packaging, there was this insight that if we, you know, once... Pa- Goods are in packages. They need a brand identity. (laughs) You can't just put a cardboard box without a logo on it. And once there's a brand identity, uh, people are gonna want to choose between different things. And that really flipped the store because you no longer really wanted or trusted the clerk on the other side to deliver things to you. That he became this object of suspicion. Instead, you wanted to be the one touching things. And so that was kind of the first step into a self-service grocery store. The Piggly Wiggly um, was was the first in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And then that just got blown up into the supermarket where people discovered, okay, we can cut staffing by letting people touch the goods themselves. We don't need trained employees. And if we just have a bigger footprint and we locate it off the downtown strip, we can save money on real estate. And doing so, cut prices tremendously, which creates that feedback cycle I was talking about earlier where people decide well this is cheap and there's a lot of it so I'm just gonna put more in my cart than I expected um, and it becomes a margin game
0: yeah yeah and so what decade are we kind of talking yeah. about most of this innovation happening all right so general store we're
1: talking like 1830s to 1890s Clarence Saunders and the Pigley Wigglies like 1916 and and you know he really thought about this like this was reinventing this was the assembly line and it was he was right dovetailed with Henry Ford um, you know, people are gonna walk through the grocery store the way we walk through an Ikea today on like a very set path and you pick your things off the shelves, just like you're wandering down an assembly line. And then 1930 was Michael Cullen invented the first, you know, generally recognized as the first supermarket, which uh, was King Cullen right here in New York.
0: Yeah, okay. And and what might that range of produce look like at that point when the supermarket uh, started to happen versus today? range of produce. I mean, well, first of all, just shipping, I mean, like
1: advances and preservation weren't there. So I think leafy greens had to make it to the store in like 3 to 5 days. You know, like otherwise they were toast. Um and so that limited what was available. There was there's no cross-country shipments of leafy greens. Um and there you know, your options for salad greens I, I mean, honestly, I can't even imagine. They were probably mostly grown at home at that time, I'm, I'm guessing. Um,
0: yeah, and then, and then talking about other produce, what would you expect to find on the grocery store shelves of, like, the 1930s that you might not see today? Um, that's a good question. I mean, there,
1: there, you know, there's a lot of food fads. I mean, in terms of, I mean, they cared about different things. You know, I, I know, for instance, like, the age of a chicken, uh, you know, produces different... I'll, I'll just blank on the names of the, the different stages but there's a like young chicken middle-aged chicken old chicken that has a that, that people used to be very attuned to so when you would go buy your your meat you would choose the type of chicken that you would want um, obviously that just you know, We don't differentiate between that anymore. We all have broiler chickens that are like 48 days old and swollen on on corn. That's
0: crazy, huh? But the the things that you're sort of describing, like the movement from the general store to grocery store to supermarket, like it sounds like for the consumer, it sounds great. Right. Is that true? Did everyone see it as this kind of positive development? I think so.
1: I mean, when the first American style supermarket opened overseas, uh this is 1956 in rome like people genuinely lost their minds like <laughs> it was, it was uh, like uh, to the italian women like their stories of them like running up and down the aisle like giddy and like scree- shrieking with delight and i don't think those are like press reports that were like designed to. like i think people had never seen something that offered that much abundance and if you think about it the, it is something we, up until COVID, that we pretty much took for granted. We have more options, you know, at New York, just walking down the street, than like kings and pharaohs had in their like height of their dominion, and uh, and we just kind of shrug. But when that was first presented, I think it was pretty much universally seen as this amazing a human accomplishment.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so your book sort of uncovers some of the hidden side of that. Like, what are the consequences of? being able to present this abundance.
1: Yeah, uh, and so that abundance and the convenience by which it's delivered does come uh, l- largely with like just nested races to the bottom. Um, the price comparison shopping that the consumer is doing or the picky ingredient list that you're doing as a consumer is echoed throughout the chain from the buyers to the brokers, to the aggregators, to the manufacturers, to the producers who are producing it. And there's an intense downward pressure in that um, price comparison and and hunt for lowest price that really gets taken out on labor. Um, Labor is the place, it's the one place in a world of globalized standards where you have XYZ ethical audit and safety audit and all these standards that you have to hit to enter the global marketplace labors this one place where if you're a producer you're semi in control and so that's where costs get delivered and of course that creates uh you know quickly undignified working uh conditions which we see and accept in the states but in more marginalized places it becomes like inhumane working conditions so for the book um you know I looked at wage labor in New York and and the and the ways that minimum job the minimum wage jobs have shifted o- over time into things that are much more demeaning and then looked at, at like the real bottom of the commodity chain in Thailand where i mean really unimaginable things like human bondage and modern slavery were embedded in the supply chain in ways that produced those low prices we have come to expect
0: yeah and then uh, so again, like looking historically, is that something that has sort of always been the case or is it something that, you know, we've created through the grocery store system?
1: I mean, look, that's a really deeper question uh, and probably one that I'm prepared to answer because I think it's something that I, I don't know the answer to. Uh, agriculture has, a, especially westernized agriculture, has a really troubling relationship with labor abuse, slavery, um, it is not an accident, you know, cotton in America, sugar cane uh, in the Caribbean, bananas and Hawaii, like colonialism and uh, food go hand in hand. And so to the extent that we have been unable to escape that historical condition, um, I think we're better at averting our eyes from it now and we're better at pretending that we're not affected from it. And certainly there are vast differences between like um, slavery in America, which was state mandated, you know, like the, the nation state and it was, uh, you know, passed from, from, uh, generational. Um, so it, it's, it, I'm not saying they're analogous, but it, agriculture has had pretty seedy ties to labor abuse from day one.
0: And so let's talk specifically, you mentioned in Thailand, for instance, slave labor being used to produce goods. What kind of goods are we talking about specifically that people might have seen on the shelves or purchased?
1: Yeah, well, so in the book, I do a very deep dive into shrimp uh, and shrimp aquaculture um, and and the farmed seafood industry. I, I think it's unfair to single those out because I don't think there's anything particularly evil about shrimp. And in fact, it's one of the things that worries me is that I'm going to paint. And I do think I paint a pretty devastating picture of that world in the book. And then people are going to be like, oh, I'm going to go to my grocery store. and I'm not going to buy Thai shrimp. And therefore, I'm not part of this problem. And the truth is that one of the reasons we know so much about Thai shrimp is uh, we've paid attention to it. And if you look at the bottom of many other commodity chains from cattle to timber to cotton to... Um, chocolate, coffee, gold, like all oh, tons of commodities, the same abuses are endemic there.
0: Right, right. I've heard for instance, that it's almost impossible to buy cacao that doesn't yeah. come from something that involves either child labor or slavery or something like that.
1: Absolutely. Uh, it's, and the cacao supply chains are very similar in the, to the Thai seafood chains in the sense that they involve aggregators who make it really difficult to have visibility through. So in Thailand, you know, the the fish will come off the boat and then someone will buy that buy up from all the different small holder boats yeah. and lump them all together and then that they'll pass that on to another broker and that broker may pass it even on to a third broker before it gets bought and enters kind of the global marketplace. At which point it's kind of been laundered. You don't you can't figure out where that seafood is coming from and establishing a chain of command, although companies will talk about it, is very difficult uh, for people who study the supply chain. And that's the same thing uh, is my understanding for uh, West African chocolate.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so I guess like in one way, the story of the grocery store is in a way a story of aggregation, right? And and sort of systematization of all these different products, right?
1: Yeah, that's what the commodity game is. I mean, when you're creating a commodity, what you're doing is you're erasing uh, salient differences so that you can exchange them, uh, you know, so they become fungible goods. And that's amazing. And there are so many benefits to that. And I don't wanna shortchange the benefits of that. You get regular manufacturing, you get consistency, you get uh, advanced purchasing of products. Like modern society doesn't exist without erasing those differences. On the other hand, there are really horrendously bad things that come from that lack of nuance and, and that lack of visibility. Yeah. And that's, that's what the book is, kind of like trying to hold up both of those things so people at least see what's being done uh, on their behalf.
0: Yeah, and you also talk about how the produce actually ends up at the grocery store, like shipments, trucking. All that kind of thing. Tell us a little bit more about what we might not know about how our products get to our grocery store shelves. Yeah, I mean, trucking is another
1: example of like kind of these nested races to the bottom. Uh, a lot of people think, and I thought before writing the book, trucking, middle class profession, Jimmy Hoffa, Teamsters, like hi- highly unionized. Um, it turns out that's dated from the 70s <laughs> and maybe early 80s. Uh, but trucking has like been deregulated uh, to an extreme point at this time. And and the trucker and and just about all aspects of it are kind of commodity pieces within that game. And there's intense price competition there. Um, And and the result is is quite sad. Um, The individual trucker is kind of viewed as a replaceable part. There's all sorts of schemes for recruiting it. The average turnover in trucking, for instance, uh, and, jo- and job turnover at major carriers has been something like 96 to 110% over the last decade, which means that like every person in that trucking fleet is, is getting hired and quitting or getting fired over the course of that year because it, it's a terrible job, uh, or non, should say it's a non-sustainable job. Um, and that, that turnover creates, um, a room for a lot of abuse because they recruit new trainees that to become a trucker, you have to take on a lot of debt. You have to get your trucking license. You have to go to CDL school. um, You have to get a truck that you can drive, these big fixed costs. And often the trucker will go into a lot of debt to get those and that debt can then be used as kind of, you know, classic debt peonage uh, as a a threat to, to push them and force them to work when they might not want to or take loads that they might not want to take
0: it sounds similar to chicken farming in the US yeah, yeah. as well.
1: It's, it's not, it's not, it's, these are all nested loops. I mean, yeah. the same economic forces are driving them. What I think is interesting is how much they're mirrored as us as consumers um, often. Um, you know, that's deregulation for you.
0: And so you have a particular way of doing your reporting. You're pretty embedded. I know you spent some time like with truckers and, yeah. and how, like, why do you take that approach and what does it lead you to discover that other people might not?
1: Uh, I take that approach because I don't really know any other way of doing things. Uh, You know, I'm pretty good at book research. I like holding up in the library, but I feel like a phony. If I was writing about truckers and all I had done is read people's PhD uh, theses and picked up the phone and talked to a few truckers. I mean, especially for truckers, they're hard to get a handle on. Uh, There's so much of their experience is beneath the radar Uh, I I wouldn't have had a clue as to what was going on if I didn't spend time in the passenger seat, Uh, which was not fun time. It might sound like it was fun to go go on the road with a trucker, but it's a pretty grueling lifestyle. And it gave me that sense. You know, it's just about building empathy and connection with people. I think it's just getting close as close as you can to their lived experience. Also. From a writing perspective just selfishly i would feel like a phony if i wrote in the detail that i write about and didn't have those first person experiences and so i'd like i yeah. I, it's, I just want to write in an immediate fashion and uh, I, otherwise i can't do that unless i'm actually there
0: no i think it's great and I, i'm curious like about any specific stories or memories you have of, of moments with those truckers on the road and-
1: I mean, you know, this is all (laughs) driving around with a trucker who's like taking a shit in a bag full of kitty litter 10 feet away from you because, uh, you know, she has irritable bowel syndrome, which is probably stress related, which is probably related to her job insecurity, which is probably related to, you know, like all these other things that we're talking about, like that sticks with you (laughs) for sure. Uh, and I'm laughing about it, but obviously it's, it's like one of those things where you laugh because I mean she was laughing too because it's the only thing you can do to not you know get distraught
0: uh, yeah absolutely and i think it's it's something that um of course of course as consumers we forget or we see on a commercial a truck driving past some beautiful highway in you know california or something and so that we have this idealized view of trucking yeah. what are some other people's things that people don't know about truckers and the, the things they have to go through about truckers or, I mean, uh, uh,
1: I think, I think there's just, I, I would say people don't have a clue, uh, about any aspect of, of the logistical systems that kind of underpin, uh, the grocery world. So, you know, just from the way, for instance, when you're trucking, someone has to unload the stuff from the back of the truck into the warehouse. It's actually a pretty dangerous job, uh, and you know it's physical labor. Uh, you're, there's the rolling kind of carts, and it's because there's high injuries in that. Nobody wants to own that job. It's called lumping, and there are lumpers, and they're almost all. I don't know. I can't even qualify it because there's nobody's really looking at it. I was going to say almost all are undocumented. I don't know if almost all of them are undocumented. I know that they're almost all marginalized. Um, people and and that nobody's really looking at them and they're not employed by the warehouse. They're not employed by the trucking. They're, they're kind of day laborers who show up to do this work because the trucker, you know, trucker can get extra money if they're willing to lump their own goods and that just means pull them out of the back of the truck into the warehouse, but the truckers don't do it. They don't want to take that $200 because they know they'll get injured doing it. Uh, and they won't be able to continue driving. And, you know, considering, um, the economic health of the trucker, that's a pretty big thing to, t- to turn down an extra $200 when you're making $17,000 a year. Uh, so it, just the details like that, I think we just don't have any clue as to the ways risks are outsourced in that industry and many other industries and, and the kind of the, the workarounds that create convenience on our behalf.
0: Yeah. No, that's fascinating. Personally, I didn't know about that at all. And yeah, yeah it really point, paints a picture of this sort of you know, things falling between the gaps. Right. And I guess like I'm thinking about, you know, there's been somewhat of a death of the union movement in the US. And I think we've recently seen Amazon against the unions and unions didn't win that one. Um, has that sort of gone in parallel with the growth of the grocery store and logistics and that kind of thing? How,
1: Yeah, you know, I I wouldn't say there's a direct parallel. I think um, there has been larger than the grocery store. And for me, the grocery store is just a microcosm for all these things. I have to say, I think the grocery store did have a fundamental role in driving, um, like changing kind of cost of living in this country and like opening up space for a middle-class by changing how we spend our food budgets. Like people used to spend 40% of their budget on food. Now we spend less than 10%. Like that positive benefit I do put on the grocery store. A lot of these negative things, I don't think grocery is driving these. These are larger forces that show up in the grocery industry. Um, However, to to answer your question, um, look, there's been a 40 years of, a policy where we're deregulating on behalf of a consumer. We're trying to drive low prices for consumer goods. That's perceived as good. And you can have a great honest debate over whether that's good or bad, but people have just kind of decided, well, to make America good or to make our economic system good, we're going to give people cheap prices and that's going to enhance their quality of life. That policy. direct, you know, comes at the expense of laborers. And its problem is people are both consumers and laborers at the same time. And uh, so I think that there's a, you know, I I think bringing that more like 360 perspective is, is kind of what I'm after.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that perspective is the other externalities as well, right? Caused by that shipping, for instance. So trucking and the emissions associated with it. What did your research sort of show you about those externalities, the emissions and, and other things that are coming from our supply chains?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, so I didn't spend that much time looking, I mean, looking at trucking emissions or uh, I think that case has been made pretty convincingly by others and so I can't give you chapter and verse on it except for there's, you know, what, something like 250 pounds of product are, is getting moved on your behalf Today, in this country, uh, and every other man, woman, and child, that's a lot of things being moved around on your behalf to maintain your lifestyle, yeah. and that takes. No matter how virtuous you are in remembering to unplug your socket, you know your, your device from the socket, and uh, how much you're minimizing. There are these structural things that are producing a large amount of waste on our behalf.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and then switching a little bit to the the process and the choices that are available in a supermarket. You tell a story about an entrepreneur who has like a, a slaw, coleslaw type slaw, sure. and wants to get that into uh, people's hands and the difficulties they have. Can you talk about that and, and how yeah. that represents how difficult it is to, to enter that market?
1: I'm, I'm, it's amazing. Wow. And I'm... I'm, I'm Curious to hear your journey to shelf. Uh, But, so yeah, in the book, I I found this amazing woman, Julie Boucher, uh, who was marketing a product called Slossa, which was like a coleslaw salsa combination. It was uh, very small. She had kind of found it when it was being manufactured in a commercial kitchen um, and kind of made it her baby to, to bring it to shelf. You know, this is not someone who's connected to like big manufacturing plants, but she had an idea that she wanted to bring to market. And it was an, it's an amazingly arduous journey that I think I had no, I, you know, I think I make a good guacamole. I could put it in a bottle and sell it. And it's like, no, you can't. There's all these factors that, uh, people in the industry are considering that have nothing to do with whether your guacamole or your salsa is tastes good. Like they care about shelf life. They care about the stability of the underlying commodities. They care about, um, you know, how your cost of goods can scale up and they care whether or not you can pay them a fee to get onto the shelf, especially for dry goods or preserved goods like SLASA, A lot of them are defined by what's known as slotting fees or trade spend, which means the supermarket is acting much more like a landlord leasing space than they are like some public market where the best quality things are going in. A significant part of the supermarket's bottom line comes from these fees and so if you're a producer you got to pay them and if you can't pay them you don't get in it's a pay-for-play system Uh, and it means if you're small it's really tough to get access
0: yeah i think as consumers i guess one of the other ways we experience that is you know you go into a supermarket and you're going to see a lot of uh products from big brands like unilever and procter and gamble who are who are willing to pay those fees or they already have the presence whereas something from a smaller manufacturer might be tough. Yeah, totally. And there's I mean, that's the legal like some people
1: hear that and they're like, oh, that's so corrupt. And it's like, that's completely legal. It's fine. It's just they're reinventing their business model to be something closer to landlords. Not so different than like the uh, kind of things that are happening with the uh, Apple app market. Um, Like we don't like to think of our marketplaces operating like that. But that's fine. But then there's also illegal corruption where supermarket buyers and producers are, you know, especially from the big guys, are just exchanging outright bribes. And you can understand why that would make sense too. And I don't really cover that in the book so much because it's pretty hard to pin down. But everyone who I talked to was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely happening. Um, yeah, it that. makes complete sense why it would happen.
0: I mean, the same thing happens in the New York restaurant industry, where you have buyers for big restaurants. Who, of course, they get their Super Bowl tickets, they yeah. get the Knicks tickets. You know, and that's, I mean, Super
1: Bowl tickets is just scratching the surface when you're talking about, you know, multi-tens of million dollar accounts. Um, that's cheap. <laughs> you know, you can get someone to buy someone a Super Bowl ticket. They like, they know they're worth. They're probably not going to settle for that. <laughs>
0: And so as a consumer, I think sometimes we try to look to labels, right? We maybe look for organic. We look for fair trade. Is that a great way to navigate the grocery store? Are there problems with that approach?
1: Yeah, there are problems with that approach. Um, And it is a tough thing to talk about because I I don't want to come down on a place of complete helplessness uh, on a consumer. And you dig deep enough anywhere, you'll find things that are problematic. Uh, Labeling is, is certainly created with the best intentions. And I do wanna honor those intentions. It's just they're really easily co-opted by the marketplace who will sell you the feeling of being virtuous without actually delivering much in terms of uh, structural change. Uh, And so that's kind of the story with a lot of those labels. You know, most labels, not all uh, and organic is a big exception here are part of like a for profit $50 billion per year industry that you can essentially shop around uh, as either a a supermarket or as a manufacturer to find the certification regime that you want for your product. And there's all sorts of misplaced incentives within that system um, coming down. To the fact that it's all based on audits, um, which make limited amount of sense, although we saw how they failed in the financial community in 2008. Uh, but they make a limited amount of sense in financial, where you're going over someone's static books and seeing if payments add up. They don't make much sense for visiting a farm, especially maybe a farm this size. <laughs> but like some of these bigger farms, um, with you know thousands of employees or manufacturing plants with. 50,000 employees uh, like uh, going in on a one day audit uh, it produces a single snapshot. It just, it's not an effective way of knowing whether or not someone's withheld wages six months ago. It, it's just, it's, it's a misplaced um, tool. Yeah. And so it, that's the backbone of this system. And, and so that itself is not so good. And then there's those incentives I was talking about where it's a for-profit Industry where the producers are paying for the auditors to come in—it doesn't add up to a place that I have tremendous amount of security and just the label.
0: Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of two things. First of all, I think I remember reading about this in Food Inc., which was, you know, of course, like one of the first books to talk about the whole system, and they were talking about um, plants having advance warning of when an inspection was going to happen. Of course. And then more recently with the film Seaspiracy, which of course you know has its own problems, whatever, but they're talking about um, certified dolphin-free tuna, of yeah. course, and then when it comes down to it, they can't certify that it's dolphin-free That's at right.
1: all. I haven't seen Seaspiracy, so I, I mean, everyone's like, oh, you gotta watch it, it's like a movie on your Thailand chapter. And then other people are like, oh no, it's garbage, don't watch it. Yeah. Uh, so, it's,
0: it's somewhere in between. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah.
1: But I think regardless of the overall product, the, yeah the, they're too, they don't in seafood, they certainly don't have visibility down to the producer level, but even in places where there is visibility, the audit structure isn't designed to catch non-empirical, you know, not something like a pathogen or food safety violation. Maybe it could work. Uh, but for something non-empirical like wage abuse, it's really not good at, at, at doing it. And you're, you're going to have really unsatisfied or like environmental degradation. You're going to have trouble yeah. using that system to enforce those standards.
0: Yeah. Is this then a failure of government? Um, you, yeah. It, if you think your government guarantees
1: you right to uh, manufacturing fl- claims, yes. I think the whole frame is a little backwards, I guess. I've come away from this book thinking that like empowering the consumer as the vehicle to get us a better food system is very seductive in a capitalist system and never going to quite work. It's too much burden on the consumer. It's too easily co-opted by marketers. Um, And so... The failure from government is that, look, things like wage abuse, things like forced labor, forget about, these are crimes. <laughs> Th- there should be legal enforcement on these things that don't rely on an auditor coming into with a clipboard to notice. Like if somebody is being chained up in a locked facility and forced to work, that is a criminal action that, you know, nation state level police solving and we need trade treaties that honor that right we don't need uh, fancy certification regimes or stickers on our food <laughs> that strikes me as a crazy way to solve that problem if we're in a globalized um working work you know work which I think is I'm, I'm in favor of globalizing work, uh, I mean, international solidarity, but then we need international solidarity in the conditions that we're offering people and, and that we expect of people. We can't say, oh, we're gonna spread this job and we're gonna keep the standards of, uh, you know, over here. Yeah. Um, that makes no sense. Yeah.
0: yeah, and then looking internationally, I know your book is mainly focused on the US, but are there, are there things that we do particularly badly here that other countries have kind of figured out how to do better?
1: That's a great question. Uh, The answer is almost certainly yes. Uh, I I don't know if I have a quick answer to that, though. Um, Let me think about it. Uh, Things that we do better, or things that we do worse than other countries have figured out.
0: Um, I mean, one of the examples I always think of is Japan. I used to live in Japan, and Japan does plenty of terrible things, but logistics in Japan often operates a lot better. You know, using rail networks, for instance, Um, much more efficient, much lower emissions, and then not putting the burden on individual drivers so much to you know, take this stuff around. Uh, so that's something that really kind of jumped out to me.
1: Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I do think that it, like, minimum wage, uh, yes, I mean, I, I blanked on this before, but yeah, it's obvious that there are many industrialized nations that treat their workers better than the US does. And I think that that's something that can pretty much only happen systemically like it really does help to have the government uh, step in there and we don't do that you know we saw $15 minimum wage in 2024 or whenever it was going to be enacted like that got dropped from the stimulus and whether that'll be picked up I don't know but it's it's something that's like on people's radar kind of but um, other countries are realized that no we can pay our McDonald's workers a decent wage, give them vacation and still have a functioning, healthy society. If one where people have dignity, that seems like something the U.S. is dropping the ball on.
0: Absolutely. And then bringing things down to maybe a little bit more of a controllable level, are there things that a city like New York can think about um, to improve some of these issues? Uh, You know, on a very small level, of course, we hope that urban agriculture, you know, can grow so that more of the food that we consume in the city is grown here. Uh, but are there other things that maybe we can do as a city better? Um, I'm yes, I'm sure.
1: I mean, there's, you know, New York in particular being, you know, just from the services that we offer to the undocumented, the, uh, who are really the backbone of a lot of aspects of the food system, um, to, yeah, I think there's a gen like it's things are on a smaller scale, and and like connecting to individual producers, I do think is like a bona fide solution and like escape hatch from the certification regimes that I was just kind of talking about, is in, in a damning way. Like, it, if you cr- create an individual channel of trust, one to one, with someone you're working with. Uh, that is going to forever beat any be seal and certification, and that is available on the small level of restaurant and, um, and 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 you know on a city level.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and you mentioned before, and I think it's a really interesting sort of trend. Like I feel like as a consumer, I'm kind of burdened with a lot of ethical decisions, a lot of environmental decisions. And and do you think like that trend is just carrying on and getting more and more and more? Well, it's a very addictive. Yeah, I think
1: yes. I think one, it gives the consumer control or feeling of control, uh, at the same time as it takes that control away from them. It's a little like airport security, which we can all like ridicule a little bit in the back of our minds. Like, oh, it's going up to an orange threat level. Oh no, it's a code red. Like these things that like both are scary when they happen, but at the same time you're like, yeah, that's not really doing something. Somebody just smuggled in like 10 battle axes and like, you know, like case of TNT. Uh, I think, That there is an analogy to our relationship with certifications in that both we we're yeah we're addicted to them. If they don't exist, we're like, what's going on here? This is probably a really shady product. Uh, Why didn't they pony up for that certification? But the more that you become used to them, the more everything is suspect, right? Which is just the flip side of what I was just saying. But you can't wrap your head around something that doesn't have these stickers on them because yeah. uh, you've been taught that it's to not trust something. And, yeah. and you just build layers and layers of like, oh, now I, I can't, tr- I'm, I'm here making this case that you can't trust the certification. So people are gonna be like, oh, well, we want people to certify the certifiers and make sure that they're good. And that already exists people. And then mm-hmm. people are gonna be like, oh, well, we need to certify those certifiers. And you yeah. know, it just becomes this pyramid scheme, right. uh, you know, of, of people watching people watching people, which just erodes trust fundamentally.
0: Yeah, I I mean, the way I think about it, we think about it all the time is, you know, the USDA or the organic body goes back and forth on whether you should certify hydroponic farming as organic. And I could see both sides of that. But also, you know, in the controlled environment, agriculture industry, there's folks who want to talk about the fact that, you know, we don't use any pesticides at all as opposed to organic pesticides. And also you're probably more confident that someone's being treated better if they're working in New York City. And so within that community, now there's a movement to create a new label, which is a controlled environment agriculture label, right? Which is sort of, I mean, I can see why we want to do it, but also it it creates some of the same issues, you know?
1: Yeah, it's a trade-off that I'd be curious how you guys navigate it. I mean, I think for me, Again, it's like strengthening that individual brand that you have where people can be like, okay, farm one, I'm picking this up. I know where they are. I know what they do. I know what they stand by. And yeah, you can be gamed in that situation. It could turn out that this is just a Potomac village. But one, there's less waste in that system. So you get gamed as a consumer every once in a while. Um, but you're not being gamed on the $50 billion per year systematic level of the audit system. Um, And two, I just generally think that when you're creating individual relationships, you are less likely. I mean, there are sociopaths out there, but you are less, they're they're not that many of them, I I hope.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so going back to the system as a whole, what do you think some really good things are that we've got going on that we've got to make sure to keep? (laughs)
1: Am I the person to ask about this? I don't know. Um, Good things that we have to keep. I mean, there's... Yeah, I think we live in an age of miracles in in the sense that I think we live in year-round strawberries, year-round basil. Like, the convenience that is offered by the grocery store is... Genuinely changing people's lives, allowing them to spend more of their income on other areas uh, of their lives, and, and hopefully live richer lives because of that. Although in the book I kind of question to to the extent that that's happening. Um, but I think that those those are real beautiful things that the system <laughs> offers us, uh, and they're they're magical. They like our level. Like quality of life in a food right now. Like for for personal example, for Christmas I decided on a whim that I was going to make a Gordon Ramsay goose. I like I had never cooked goose before in my life, uh, and you know he his recipe involved like Chinese five spice and a, a bunch of like spices I'd never even heard of. When I consider myself pretty savvy um, and Within like an hour of reading that online, I had gone to my local Whole Foods and gone to like one other store in the area, gotten a sustainable goose, you know, with quotes around that, we don't know, uh, and, and cooked it up and made this like, like I it was like a dream world. <laughs> and that's the world we live in. I don't want to take that for granted. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so that's a nice segue. I was literally gonna ask you, how did you shop before you wrote this book and how do you shop now?
1: Yeah. So the official answer is I really haven't changed anything. Um, and that's because I do think arguments for like consumer, dri- one of the big takeaways I had in this book is like, look, consumers and consumer different discrimination is not going to drive change in the marketplace. And you are fooling yourself if you're pouring your energy into changing things that way. That's not to say that, again, you can't make a trusted relationship with a specific uh, place. And that is a good thing. That's obviously true. Um, but on the level of making decisions that when I'm going through a supermarket and picking items off the shelves, which I don't know anything about that. And I don't have a, dis- like a, a true one-to-one relationship with those consumers, that that is not something I believe will drive change. And so I kind of like deprioritized the energy that I used to put in to that discrimination uh, between goods and put that towards like, how am I going to advocate for policy level things? How am I going to support unions? How am I going to, and if not unions, because you think there's some bugaboo, like how am I going to support workers' rights uh, to self-advocate for themselves and, how, you know, wage floors and, and, and advocating for like, you know, trade treaties with enforcement teeth and, and right. things like that. Um, th- those are, that's, so my, my diet really hasn't changed. I, the asterisks and why I said like the official answer in the beginning is, I don't eat that much Thai shrimp anymore because I interviewed a lot of people who were, uh, imprisoned on boats and I can, and it's unfair, you know, the Thai industry has reformed since I wrote, I wrote this stuff in, or I didn't write, but I was doing my research in 215, 2016. There've been big changes there. They, they, they have suffered from the bad press and they've reformed. I, I don't want to buy them because I, when I'm eating that shrimp now I can think of the people who were abused. Uh, getting it in, in the most horrible ways. Um, but that's a good example of like where I'm making a discrimination uh, in goods and it's uh, maybe not even a helpful
0: one. Yeah. You're part of a tradition in journalism that examines the food industry, you know, going back to the meatpacking plants in Chicago a long time ago. And, uh, you know, I mentioned Food Inc. There's been others. And, and I think you were saying that there actually has been some effect of, of people pointing out things like the Thai shrimp industry and bringing that to a broader audience and people responding. Do you feel like there's positive change is possible from work like yours? I mean, I hope
1: so. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm an optimist. I, that's why I wrote the book, uh, fundamentally. I think positive change is gonna happen. I think one of the important parts of that is like keeping the, the ways that we're changing things honest. And so the certification regime is like built on good intentions. I think there, good things have resulted from it. I don't ultimately think that it's going to be the conduit to creating a better world. Uh, and so, yeah, I want to hold both those ideas in the same time. I think, you know, in terms of food safety, like the time from Upton Sinclair to now it's the time from Jack in the Box, you know, in Odwala, 1990s to now, has been radical change for the better. Uh, meat isn't being recalled in this country in the same way it was in the 90s. That's is great news. Uh, I think we can do the same thing for labor. Uh, it's gonna be more difficult because our entire economic system right now, it rests on taking cuts out of laborers, but I think it's possible.
0: So let's say you get a surprising email tomorrow and it says that you're gonna be head of the USDA. What are some things that you would wanna put in place?
1: God I would I would start a hiring committee for someone more qualified uh, <laughs> pretty much immediately um, what would I do if I was ahead of the USDA? I don't know. Um, I you know the big things that I can think about is creating an iron wall between lobbying and the people who are running the USDA um, and, and and making a moratorium on that and I say that knowing that a lot of the smartest minds and also the people who are qualified to talk about our food system do come from industry. And so I I think it's about severing the incentive and structure that, that you can then go from government back into the private sector, not stopping people from going from the private sector into government and taking those sympathies with them. Um, but I do think that there is a problem with money in politics and the USDA bears that out and I uh, I would love to be part of uh, uh, solving that. Uh, then <laughs> I'll uh, it, retire and okay. hand it off to someone else.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and who do you think is already out there in the political world that it, is moving things in the right direction? And what kind of issues do you see that are moving forward and, and progress being made? Um,
1: you know, I think they, we're in a tremendously exciting issue. We're in a tremendously exciting time. I think a lot of these issues are coming up from... All over, you know. I think it's no secret with how sympathetic I am to labor that I, I'm I'm probably pretty far to the left on some of these issues, um, and so you know, AOC I see as like uh, you know a real political talent uh, that I that I hope gets cultivated, uh, and I think you know just a lot of the discussion about around undocumented workers uh, has really um, been in, inspiring to me in terms of like bringing that lens into just how much as a country we depend on this workforce and how much um, we need to be honoring that fact that we're depend on them by giving them dignified lives. And, and that doesn't, there's not, I am not like of the opinion that is like, there's a one fix, all like open borders or whatever. There's not one targeted fix to that. There's a lot of ways to create that dignity. Um, but I think it's being talked about in ways that it wasn't being talked about in the recent past.
0: Yeah, amazing. And, and for someone who's inspired by your work, and I think there's quite a few people, and they're, they're thinking, OK, I'm interested in this. I want to discover things. How do you get started?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know how I got started. I always wanted to write. Um, I was a public school teacher for a long time. I always thought I was gonna write. Um, So start young and know you're gonna be a writer. I mean, writing is a cruel cruel condition to put anyone in. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. It's not a (laughs) particularly pleasurable way to spend your time. You're desk bound, hunched over. Uh, Yeah, or you're you're doing research is the best part, Um, but the actual writing process is pretty miserable. Um, Even though, That's obviously what sustains you. Um, So I think having that drive and knowing that that's what you want to do is the only kind of get started piece. I mean, again, like I was an undergraduate biology major. I went uh, into teaching um, in the public school systems uh, as a a science teacher um, because I thought that that would be a way to pay the bills while I was a writer. Um, But I have no like training as a writer per se except for i love reading and i believe that if you apply yourself to any problem with a kind of dogged tenacity you're going to make it uh you know you're going to make some progress there
0: amazing okay and and what are you working on next can you talk about that at all yeah,
1: yeah, in the, in, the coy, in the very coyest, broadest uh, terms, because it's in the beginning, and it's it's less about being coy actually, and le- more that I don't know what I'm talking about. But I'm looking in the green energy space um, and looking at the electrification of the grid, and, and I really would like it to be an upbeat book um, after writing two books that were. More dismal. The first book was like about a. It was kind of a pre-me too book about uh, an abusive yoga guru, and this book has lots of human darkness in it as well. Um, So hopefully it will be a more upbeat look at that space.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Well, it's been really fascinating talking to you. I want to say thank you, Benjamin.
1: All right, thank you for having
0: me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, Thanks for tuning in uh, to the Farm One podcast. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can email us at info at farm one. Or you can visit our website, farm.one. We'd love to hear what you think and ideas about new guests, that kind of thing. Uh, This is Earth Month, and we're publishing a few pieces of content about Earth Month, so stay tuned for other things. Uh, But I want to say thank you. Thank you, Benjamin. I'm Rob Lang. Uh, Thanks for joining us, uh, and we'll see you next time.